right. Welcome to Bookworm Games. Uh, this is Wesley, and I have with me Jason, my friend here in Spokane. Uh, welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is my first podcast, so I'm happy that it's your podcast. Hey, that's really exciting. I love getting to introduce people to the uh, the podcast making side of things. It's really actually pretty fun. I found it to be um, a great way to, for me at least, like discipline myself to make something new each week. Um, so I don't know. I know you're a pretty creative person, and I'm sure you have your own process, but it's, it's something to consider. I, I think if you uh, have a good time here. So we'll do our best um, to, to get you hooked on this thing uh, and get you back for more episodes in the future. But but I'm, I really appreciate you making the time and agreeing to do it and um, jumping right in. Just could you tell me and, and anyone listening, like, how did you get interested in Xenogears in the first place? What's your uh, experience with the game or background with the game? And um, maybe something that you find particularly interesting or, or different about it? Sure. Um, so like most people, my first experience with the game was when it was released in 1998. I was 16 years old at the time and um, was very excited to play it because it was sort of a big follow-up to the Final Fantasy series while not being an installment of that series. Right. And one of the things that I think makes it so memorable to people who played it at the time, as well as myself, is how different it was from the Final Fantasy series, especially in art and visual style, as well as in narrative. And um, it's kind of interesting how I've come back to thinking about the game as well as other video games, because I did take a very long break from video games upon graduating high school. Going into college, I became an art film geek, and that kind of took up all of my time and imagination for a good decade. Um, but what got me back into video games um, is actually a little bit more academic than it is in terms of sort of hobbies or entertainment. I noticed that there was a lot of subcultures that were developing online in relation to video games, especially of that era, that were very nostalgic-based. And these new art forms um, had a perspective of that era that I felt was really interesting on an academic level, whether it was pixel art or the musical genre of vaporwave, just this emotional anchoring that people have to that era, I thought was very fascinating. And it got me thinking about the games that I played as a teenager. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think we've talked a little bit about nostalgia uh, and I find it really interesting um, what you're saying about how people find it like an anchor, right, for, for the 90s, that, that time of, of growing up. Um, because I think, yeah, that's a little bit ahead of maybe where the, the culture as a whole is right now. Um, at least I get the feeling like the 80s is, is kind of still in vogue, maybe not, I don't know, maybe I'm behind. Um, but but it, if so, um, then we're ripe for a kind of return to the 90s um, as people, I suppose, start to feel that nostalgia and start to investigate it in their own ways. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, in particular, what you said about art, visual art, um, music, um, how those elements enter into this discussion. Um, so I, I don't know if you remember, like early in the game, uh, you go to Satan's house on the hilltop 
and he has this music box that plays this melody, right? And and it is this um, kind of beautiful moment of nostalgia that's built into the game. Um, but I think then, you know, naturally enough, the game itself, you know, as you play it years later or, or even just like get back into thinking about it seriously, uh, it, it has that same effect. Um, so that's, that's a, an area that I kind of am also fascinated by is the art and the music and, and maybe some particular moments like that. Do you remember any that, that have really stuck with you um, from Xenogears or from other, other RPGs and things? Yeah, well, so I think the visual style for video games in general for the fifth generation of consoles, so the, or I guess you could call it the 32-bit generation. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did watch your um, initial podcast. I didn't want to watch too many because I kind of wanted to sort of come up with my own ideas on the topic. But you did use a phrase that I feel was perfect uh, for this game, but also games in, uh, in general of that era. It's sort of a beautiful mess with emphasis on mess. Um, it was kind of a strange era technologically in terms of how it influenced visual style. So you have the 8-bit and 16-bit eras, which are pretty harmonious in the sense that their music, their visuals are, are very consonant with each other. They're, they both have that very pixelated or primitive or low fidelity style that meshes um, very well together. And it's a, it's a style that's very easy to parody. However, in the 32-bit era, you have kind of this forcing of primitive, low fidelity styles with high fidelity styles due to the fact that you know, we're still in an era where everything's very pixelated, everything has sort of like jagged look to it, but at the same time, we're now using a storage medium that has a huge amount of space. And so at the same time, we're also able to have full motion video, we're able to have realistic textures, but we're also able to have fully orchestrated CD quality music. And so we get our, these, you know, very recognizable styles from earlier generations of video games paired with gorgeous compositions that are fully orchestrated and um, full motion video that really push the narrative along. Um, and so I do, that is sort of my sense of that era, is that you have this sort of asymmetric advancement in technology that resulted in this style that is pretty unique to the entire history of video games. Oh yeah. So. I, I honestly haven't played a lot of really contemporary video games that would be, you know, at the state of the art with this sort of thing. But my understanding is that, you know, VR has come pretty far. Um, and I know like a lot of online games and things like that are, are pretty immersive. Um, so I, I certainly would agree that there's a strange kind of transition point there um, from like the classic, uh, yeah, like Mario, you know, that kind of arcade game thing. To, to whatever it is that's going on now that, you know, sort of takes over people's lives and, and stands in for reality. But, um, but that, that threshold, I think, is a really curious one um, because there's something weird going on with, um, with time, I guess, and identity that's, that's wrapped up with that, right? Like, you know, for, for us playing it then, that was the most modern thing. That was the most advanced technologically. Um, it's only with hindsight, I guess, that we can sort of see just how 
messed up <laughs> uh, and partial at all, you know, and fragmentary it is. Uh, and I'm curious, I guess, if, if there's maybe a, an inherent, um, I don't know, like gaze or something. I, I'm not sure quite how to put it, like that, that allows us to see that now. Um, whereas at the time it was just like, just as immersive as like the most, you know, unimaginably advanced thing that there might be. Um, I, I don't know. That that was my impression, at least at, at the time playing it, I had no qualms about, you know, any jagged edges or anything, but, but now, yes, looking back, I totally can see it. What do, what do you think? It's funny that you mentioned that because I had an experience with a coworker who was talking about the remake of Final Fantasy VII. And again, this was after more than a decade of not playing video games. And so I had an unbroken perception of what I was feeling at the time when I played that game. And I think what might have happened was I was taking the relatively higher fidelity of the CGI cutscenes and sort of applying that amount of realism and detail to the entire game because then he showed me the comparisons between, you know, scenes from the original game and the remake and I was shocked by how, I'll just be frank, how bad it looked. I, um, I wasn't expecting it. I didn't realize how blocky and stiff and puppet-like, um, not only how they, the models look, but how they also move. And it, it, it was a bit of a reality check that um, our memories impart a lot of editing um, on the things we experience as kids. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's like an element of, of imagination that enters in. Um, I, I'm always kind of interested in that component of it. And, and so I guess with Xenogears, it's almost like the entire game is, is kind of just like a dramatization of this very very powerful story um it seems almost like you know the the whole game is like a uh, an animation for the story rather than in most video games where the story is just kind of like this extra thing that's there because you've got to have it um and, and so when you go back and you um when you look at that element of it and take that into account too um the complexity of the story i think is also sort of an advance of or sort of out of step with the actual abilities of the of the medium at the time um, to convey and so it, it really relies on it pulls on the player's imagination and the player's kind of involvement uh, in, a, in a really powerful way um, where it's its weakness is almost a strength <laughs> you know uh, I don't know if um, if you remember a whole lot of the story. I know you mentioned you, you've been um, kind of researching some of it. So do, do you get the sense, you know, now that you're looking at the story again, does it kind of hold up or does it seem similarly uh, over the top or, 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 or lacking in some way? Well, so even though I, I brought up that anecdote, I do feel that Xenogears visually does not suffer in the same way. And I, I think the main reason is because it uses hand animated sprites for its characters rather than the mm -hmm. necessarily chunky models of the time. Um, what I think it does do, and I'll answer your question about how I feel about the story, but so I was trying to apply a bit of a Marshall McLuhan style analysis of you know, the particular era of video games and treating it as a separate medium. Um, and I was wondering, 
So how does this particular medium affect the way we view the content? And so I think the interesting thing about Zenigears is that it does take in those child, recognizably childlike visual styles of the 8 and 16-bit era with these very animated cartoony sprites, also bringing in um, you know, the, the sense of playing with, with big, amazing toys with the three renderings of the mechs, while also delivering this story that heavily draws from dystopian and very dark Western science fiction. We have elements of 1984. We have elements of, obviously, Soylent Green. Um, they name check Soylent Green directly in the, in the game. Um, but I even get shades of H.P. Lovecraft and um, the Harland Ellison story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, just in the sense of, you know, artificial intelligence sort of malevolently and uh, sadistically experimenting on the human genome. So you have these extremely dark elements, but presented with this very charming, child-centered visual style. And I think what that does to the imagination is that it allows us to keep our childlike temperament as we explore this story. And so in a sense, we're almost more vulnerable to the darkness of the story because the visual style keeps us in a childlike mindset to a degree. Um, and I think because the, the story does draw from so many dystopian science fiction tropes and as well as, you know, historic biblical tropes and uh, even directly um, using names from the Bible. I, I think, I think it, it, it's a great representation of the sort of a la carte mashup style that was, that was uh, indicative of the time. The, the effect is it still works today because of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that stuff is perennial, I, I think. And, and I think of a of an artist like uh, Picasso, right? Who like, as he's done everything possible to advance art style, it seems like he sort of goes back to and revisits a really naive childlike style um, at, at a certain point, you know, he's, he's done everything. And so he starts to do it all new, you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, I like that, what you say about this, this style being sort of child friendly or child um, oriented or something. Um, I think of the um, the maturity of the themes of the game in in contact with that um, simplicity and and kind of harmoniousness of the art, um, and I think that there's you know just another kind of of disjuncture there. Like that's the impression I get anyway. Um, but at the same time, it it has a powerful kind of effect on you. Um, I think when you are a kid playing the game. Uh, it's it's sort of formative, maybe it like is maybe your first brush with really considering some of these um, you know themes and, and uh, problems that are posed, um, and then you know in a different way than looking back and playing it now, it, it kind of reconnects you with that with that uh, frisson of, of the new, you know this this new thing breaking through, um, and uh, gosh, it it's it's such a a strange experience because. On the one hand, it's nostalgic. You know, you can you can feel like you know you're a kid again in some fashion. But on the other hand, it's 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 just very uh, disconcerting, right? Because 
you, you are looking at this thing um, and it's like amazing that you could have possibly uh, encountered it at such a young age <laughs> and not been like scarred or something. <laughs> That's kind of how I think of it now. Um, and so, you know, part of my project in this, I think, is kind of an academic one in like, in the sense of like education, like what is the, the role of these games as a, as a tool in, in learning and teaching, you know, in, in the same way that books and literature might be. Um, and, and when I think about it that way, I'm sort of like, uh, not sure whether I would actually, you know, let kids or maybe not let, but assign to kids that they should play these games, you know, um, the way I would assign them to read a book. Um, because it, it is, it's awfully immediate. It's awfully, like you say, dark and, uh, and heavy at times. So, um, maybe it's best that it be this sort of, uh, experience that they come to on their own and, and, and get to uh, discover and maybe, you know, I don't know if it, if it's, um, something which in, in sort of teaching it explicitly, um, maybe interferes with that experience uh, of, you know, the, the wonder of it or something like that. Um, but I, I guess, I guess that's something that I would have to experiment with a little bit more to, to see what people's impressions are. Um, but what do you think about that? I mean, have you ever considered, you know, we, we do sort of have courses in, in art and classic film now. So do you think that a course in a classic video game would be doable? I absolutely do think it would be doable. Um, I do think for this particular era of video games, I do think it has to be introduced to kids pretty young. I, I know you're concerned with the darkness of the subject matter, but as I was saying with how disharmonious and uh, dissonant the visual style is, not even just the visual style, but just the, how much of a mashup it is, how many different elements it ties in together. I feel like seeing that from a distance, especially from a mature, established adult perspective, you know, you mentioned, you know, your mind has to kind of mold into to accept the look of this game and accept this narrative style. Without approaching it from a more malleable stage of development, I do feel like it would be lost. Um, your mind does have to mold and shape itself to sort of receive the aesthetic of this game. I, I don't think it's as translatable to either the, the present generation who are um, who used to seeing just full-on verisimilitude, full-on immersion, or even the, old, the generation older than us who sort of skipped this this era of video games and are, are only familiar with the Super Marios and the Legends of Zeldas. I, I do think this is such a strange era that it, it best served to audiences that are still very open, who still don't have those preconceived notions of how video games should look before they, they first encounter this game. Because otherwise, I, I think they're always going to be comparing it to visual styles that are much more, because they're more harmonious, are much more acceptable to the eye. Full-on realism is acceptable to the eye. Full-on abstraction is acceptable to the eye. But when it teeters in between the two, the eye is always in a state of confusion. Um, so I, I think 
being at that stage where you can come to the style rather than, you know, bringing with you all your preconceived notions is, is the best way to appreciate this game. Yeah, so when you start to kind of dig into that style, um, what are some of the other elements of it that you would see as kind of foundational? If you were, if you were to sort of start to put forth an aesthetics, right, of this era, um, what are some of its characteristic elements um, al- alongside that, uh, that sort of peculiarity of Xenogears, right, with the, the hand-drawn and the full motion video, um, maybe that dark tone that you, you noted? Uh, what, what are some of the other elements that would go into that? Well, and this, this maybe is going into the level of maybe semiotics too much for that question, but I, I did notice that I was sort of reminded that there we're not meant to see all of the elements through our own cultural or historical context. For, for instance, the way the characters look and when we see their names, if we try to apply all, all of our preconceived notions of ethnicity or of culture, then it's going to give us a, a, an incorrect view of who these characters are. And so I feel like the game immediately sets us up to come to it at ground zero. We're supposed to accept how the characters look, how they're styled, um, as well as the, the environments that they live in as only existing in this world. And we can't glean from any of the representations, any information based on our, the context that we're familiar with. Um, that might be going a little bit away from your question, but um, no. I, feel, I feel like that sets us up to be open to even more of the, um, I guess, deconstructionist themes of the, of the storyline, such as, you know, what is God? Who is the creator? Who, who are human beings? Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think um, the aesthetic is very important, not only in the pleasure we get from the visual style, but it also sets us up to be open to the different narrative concepts that we encounter as we get through the game. No, that's very, very interesting. Yeah, so it sort of provides a, um, a fresh look um, within its own context. Uh, whatever it means by um, a, a small village um, and at the sort of the border between two very large powers at war, we can, you know, sort of read some things into that based on stuff we might know about um, 20th century history or whatever, right? Uh, I don't know if that's all that helpful though, right? Like, cause as you say, it's, it's its own thing. Um, it's a place where <laughs> the border also has like a, a forest full of giant, dinosaur-like monsters, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm not sure what, quite what to do with that, right? And, and yeah, there's, I think one element of that is that combination, that mashup of Eastern and Western aesthetic, um, I don't know, cues or something, right? Um, the kind of cultural melange that you get there um, with uh, the first sort of big uh, country that you get to is a desert country, but it 
it incorporates elements from all sorts of places and all sorts of imaginary places um, that don't clearly map onto any sort of cliche that we might have of, of what a desert country would be like in the real world or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there's something kind of interesting about the, uh, the way that you have to sort of give yourself over to be um, brought into this world. Uh, I think that along with that, there's a, um, a kind of yeah, simplicity uh, at first to the, um, to the art style. Uh, it's, it's like very pastoral in a way. Um, you know, it's like not super high technology, but you get that uh, within the gameplay itself. You get that after coming to it from this like very long, very ornate opening sequence, which I think is really pretty um, remarkable. Um, I, I don't know if you played Chrono Cross, which was around the same time, but it had a very short kind of intro movie sequence thing um, that was, you know, similarly impactful, but it, but nothing like the kind of, you know, intro to the storyline. It was kind of just a bunch of, of images. Those, those kinds of things, um, I think, really set the tone for the game, right? This, uh, that, that sets it apart. Um, but I, I don't know, like, with your eye for the, for the aesthetic, um, what did you make of that opening sequence? Uh, and, and then some of the, maybe some of the subsequent, um, like different places that you get to go in the game, how they um, relate back to that or, or don't. Just in terms of visual style, again, um, it, it just has this really disorienting, decentering effect when you go, and again, you know, when you're a kid from that era, you, you know, you're just a few years away from playing Donkey Kong Country, when you see these very well rendered, very well animated full motion video sequences, your brain is telling you you're watching a movie. And so you're set up for a movie, a filmic experience. And um, it's, a, it's a very well-directed sequence. But then we're all of a sudden tossed into Legoland, basically, where we're, <laughs> we're in this far more simply rendered environment with very charming uh, characters with a lot of expressive anatomy. And but also the setting has such a huge amount of contrast to the intro. You know, the, the intro is high science fiction. Um, it's very bombastic. And then we're in an idyllic town in the woods. And uh, the art style changes to meet our new environment, to meet the, the timbre of our new environment. So I, I think while most video games failed to use this mashup style, which everybody was using because they wanted to push the technology as far as possible and impress their audience. Xenogears is one of the few games that mindfully uses this asymmetric technology um, to its advantage, to its emotional advantage. Oh, right on, yeah. Well, so, and then um, when you start to in, in investigate, I guess, in that light, looking at it as an intentional thing um, to, to kind of 
use that to the advantage of the game. Um, what do you make of the the two different kinds of gameplay, right? You have the gameplay where you're just the character, just the sort of human being um, running around talking to people versus the the battles that you have the gear, right? This huge, you know, absurd um, carapace of machinery on you. Um, that that seems to me to to kind of echo that in another way. Um, and, and the whole visual style changes when you're in the gear battles, right? Uh, so I don't know, what, what do you make of that aspect of the game? Part of it is obviously that, you know, this is a game and it has to be entertaining and the grind aspect of it has to be entertaining. Uh, so adding that variety, I, I think is a, is a good choice. But um, in terms of aesthetics, I, yeah, the, the, the appearance of the gears is so starkly different from the appearance of the human characters that um, it, it does, you know, throw us into a different mindset. Um, it, it, it would be easy to say that, you know, a lot of it is just childlike escapist fantasy. The, the gears, the, the way they're designed, they do look like toys, you know, recognizable, you know, mech-style toys of the era. Um, and that's, that's such a, that's such a big part of this anime and, um, just those genres as well to have that, that power fantasy, um, that's facilitated by these visually very different, um, characters or objects, I guess. It, it sounded like you were going to go off and, um, somewhere else with that too, though. Like, um, here's what I was thinking about, like the gear is this thing from from an ancient time we're told like a, a maybe a very very ancient time actually if if that um kind of uh, sequence at the very beginning is something that's supposed to have happened in the distant past long enough for people to have forgotten about it entirely right um and yet they are much more advanced than what we would expect from sort of other elements of the culture that were presented with in the in the um, in the early parts of the game, anyway. Um, so there's this kind of weird element there of like the gear is this thing which is at once ancient and futuristic, right? It's it's kind of making me think of you know this problem that we're in, um, you know, as as people going back and playing this game, which is you know old um, and yet sort of portends some you know mature um, truths possibly i don't know um so i i i think that there's a weird you know it it's this um this thing that you get to um play with within the game right but it also sort of you know takes you over like Faye changes uh when he goes into the gear it it's it's something he doesn't really want to do it, it sort of overtakes him um so yeah there, there's something very compelling about that you know, that power fantasy thing, <laughs> um, which isn't entirely under our control, I feel like. It's spooky. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree with um, your point that the, again, it's, it's that destabilization of our preconceived notions that this game demands of us the moment that we start. Um, so I, I have encountered some sci-fi authors who use, who use this trope of presenting super high tech as a 
artifact of the distant, distant past. past. Um, there's the author Gene Wolfe in his um, The Book of the New Sun series where we are in the perspective of characters who are observing this technology from an unfathomably distant past. And to them, the technology just appears to be magic because they can't understand it. And so you get these interesting points in the book where a character will be describing a, a sort of a knight with a magical visor, and then you realize he's actually describing a picture of an astronaut. And so I, it seems to me that the, the writers of the story of Xenogears have this very encyclopedic knowledge of of science fiction, particularly dystopian science fiction. And I, I think this idea of an advanced path, path is a dystopian idea that there's a, there's a fall from a, um, a more advanced, more intelligent um, previous civilization. And so we're sort of recovering from this fall. And uh, yeah, I, I think there are so many elements like that that are in Xenogears where we're meant to question well, you know, this looks new and high tech, but is it also ancient? Or, you know, this, this appears to be God, but is it something that human beings originally created? You know, there's a, there's a lot of these subverting of, you know, what, what is preceding what? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it, it brings in the God thing, like, right in your face at the very start. It, it does it in a, in a very confusing way, but... Um, but what, what do you make of that as, a, as far as like the semiotics, when you invest something with the, the God name, right? Like what does that do? Um, what does that do to the scale of, of the kind of story that you're telling? And, and what does it do to the sort of stakes that, that are involved there? Um, how, how do you, how do you uh, kind of manage that within the limitations of a, a closed story? Or is it sort of always going to, um, push beyond itself in, in some, you know, sort of deconstructionist kind of ways? Yeah, to me, that was the biggest question um, about what this game is doing. Um, we sort of seem like we're in between the third and fourth stages of Baudrillard's sort of simulation, where what we think are symbols that are referencing things from the real world actually are at this point are completely divorced from them. The way it doesn't even, because if you were to treat the Bible, for instance, as from the perspective of a, of a religious person, it's a book that's referencing real things. God is a real being. Right. These characters in the Bible are real people. They're real historic people and the miracles actually happen. But in Zenegears, they're kind of cut up into distinct little um, pieces of semantics or names that have connotations or some abstract meaning, but they're basically pulled apart from each other and then reorganized in service of the story. So at this point, their references are, um, they're orders of remove from the original references that, for instance, in the Bible, the, the references the Bible would be making. And so it, it, it's that same strategy that they're using just in terms of the names of the characters. For instance, 
say Wong, I think that's ostensibly a Chinese name, but to say that some, a character is Chinese makes no sense in this universe. So we're divorced from the connotations and the historical meaning of even how names are used in this, in this game. So in terms of semiotics, I would say it's asking, at most it's asking you to bring in very vague connotations I would, okay, I would say at most it's asking you for the emotions that you attach to these names, these concepts, these uh, representations, but they're asking you to leave behind all of their material reality. And so, yeah, we're, we're like at fourth order simulation here. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't actually read Baudrillard. I am sort of conversant with the idea of a simulation or a simulacra or, or whatever. Uh, I'm more familiar with, with Plato, you know, and the analogy of the cave. And that's kind of, I take it to be sort of like the idea there, right? That there's like, you know, some reality maybe out there, but we, we don't have access to it. We're, we're in search of it, um, but we're sort of seeing these, um, these false representations that we mistake for the truth or something like that. Um, I think that that, you know, that plays in really nicely with the actual story of the game too, right? That there's like this truth that's, that's hidden, um, that's out there and uh, that is beginning to sort of manifest itself. Um, it's, it's also within, right? Because it's like this character id that, that, that comes out of Faye without his knowledge of what, what's going on and, and these sort of memories that are triggered um, in these different moments with music or with meeting a new character, um, you'll know, sort of have these flashes of recollection. Um, so there, there's something very, yeah, very interesting and sort of philosophically uh, troubling going on there. Um, do you think, as, as far as the game goes, um, does, it, does it contribute anything like original to these uh, sorts of, I don't know, dilemmas, these classic, you know, problems of philosophy and, and so forth? I, I think I, I think that the aesthetic is kind of unique and original, right? Like uh, the aesthetic element. And insofar as you can disentangle that from the story and from the philosophy, it, it is, um, it's an original thing, I, I guess. But, but do you think like the philosophy itself, if you did sort of divor divorce it from the, uh, the appearances, um, does it contain some, some new truth that you could distill out um, does the story do something really original um, in the way that, you know, uh, we might expect a, a great sci-fi novel to do or, 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 or film or whatever? Um, I, I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. I, I haven't really made up my, my mind on it yet myself. Yeah, I, I would say for that era and perhaps we're just in an, in an extension of that era, I don't think the goal is ever new truth. Um, you know, there, I sort of see the 90s as being this transition from postmodernism to metamodernism. And metamodernism is still a, um, it's not a fully accepted um, concept or, or, or new way to describe, you know, the, the post-modernism post, post era. But the basic idea is that we don't have to settle for 
any particular ideological standard or criteria that we can oscillate from any of them, even for the simple reason of mood, changes of mood. So I, I don't think anyone at the time actually was looking for new truths. I, I think they were suggesting that truth is highly personal and that it, it almost can be arrived at by sampling everything that is under the sun and deciding what speaks to you, what, what you gravitate towards. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be static, which I think is a huge change from how truth was um, sort of described in the past. You know, if you, you change your mind because you accept you're wrong, but in the meta-modern meta era, you change your mind because your emotions have changed, and, and that's enough of an explanation. Um, so I think what Zenegir does beautifully is that it gives you the whole smorgasbord of um, sci-fi themes and tropes, um, modern visual art styles, um, and it just brings them all together and kind of lets you pick and choose a little bit. Yeah, no, that's, I think that is a description for me of kind of an ideal liberal education in a way, right? It presents you with a lot of interesting and, and you know, good things in a, in a sort of safe environment, but one that's still exciting. And you get to sort of experience them and, and make your own judgments, uh, which are sort of informed by this, this rich experience. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, as far as like what the the whole post postmodern um, outlook might be here uh, to to try to you know move between different emotions, you brought that up a few times here, um, and maybe maybe could riff on that a little bit with respect to the um, the musical quality of the game because I think that's another area of the kind of general like aesthetics and story and emotion and mood um the, the music of this game is so powerful uh for me you know in some ways it's the best part about the game i think uh, <laughs> and so i'm curious what you uh what you hear in in that and uh, what kind of prospects the the musical stylings open up here yeah i think the music more than any other element stands apart it, it's hard to make it seem like it's on the same level, just in the sense of technology. You know, we have a game that's on CD, and essentially, I mean, audiophiles will disagree with me, but for most people, a CD and CD quality music is as high as you're ever going to be able to distinguish in terms of quality. And so the music of Xenogears is on the level of a film score in terms of quality and in terms of comp composition. And so it's the one element of the game that I think is, it's not open to criticism in terms of era and in terms of style. It's, you know, as good as any other uh, era of video games. And it, I, that seems to be an incontroversial statement. And so it, it's not under the same critique or judgment that the graphics would be, the characterizations would be, even the way the narrative plays out um, is very Eric-specific. So the, the music, for most people, uh, you know, audiophiles notwithstanding, 
um, has not aged at all. Right. Just as beautiful as when everyone first heard it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, um, the things that the composer does with it um, are, are kind of easy to, to map onto the other sorts of um, hodgepodge qualities uh, that the game has too, right? He, he, he incorporates um, Eastern and Western. He incorporates things that sound old and ancient. He incorporates things that sound futuristic and, you know, um, there's just a lot of um, very great variation, right? Just diversity. Um, but at the same time, there's there's a, a way that, um, yeah, as you say, it doesn't sound like it's uh, unfinished in the same way that a lot of the rest of the game does. It, it doesn't feel like it's um, straining against limitations of time or of technology or, or whatever. Um, I, I think, you know, that's a testament I guess just to the the power um, of that that creativity and and that you know dedication to um, to the work that um, Yasunori Mitsuda must have had, uh, and you know there there's some parts of the game I guess I've heard this criticism I'll, I'll see what you think of it maybe you've heard it too that the game reuses music um, too often or like puts it in places where it doesn't really fit sometimes. Um, I, I don't remember feeling that way when I played the game the first time through, but, but now that I've kind of thought about it a little bit, I, I could kind of see that. Um, and it sort of does like pull you out of the experience at, at times if you're kind of thinking about it too much. But, but generally I, I find that, you know, it does, it works really well with the rest of the game. Um, although it does kind of stand out as being a little better maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I would have to I'd have to go through the whole game again to see if I would have that experience. I, I recently listened to the soundtrack, so I, you know, that that repetition, um, I wouldn't have encountered that. Okay. Um, I think what surprised me most about <laughs> revisiting the soundtrack were there was that there were genres that I didn't remember. Oddly enough, that the soundtrack covers. If there's this one song. Shoot, I'm going to have to look it up. It's the one where there's actual singing on it, where it basically sounds like adult-oriented radio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, easy listening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as well, some of the songs are, because a lot of them, you know, like you mentioned, it does have that sort of world music feel. But some of them are, you know, a bit jazzier, um, kind of recall sort of like American music of the mid-last century. Um, some of them even recall like that kind of sort of ambient, new agey kind of music that's sort of stereotyped as being what you would hear at like a Japanese grocery store, uh, which I, I had forgotten those elements as well. So it covered more range, actually, than I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that makes me really want to go to a Japanese grocery store, actually, <laughs> just hang out. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I hear the, the kind of, um, you know, contemporary, easy listening sort of feel of it. Um, and I, and that makes me think a little bit about how the game is designed basically to sell, you know, like when it, when you get down to it, you know, you can make it a work of art all you want, but, but it's also this commodity 
that has to appeal to people and has to sell copies. Um, and I, I guess that, that economic aspect of it, like maybe, you know, making sure there's something for everyone is a part of that too. Um, but I just feel like this game really didn't, um, didn't really sort of do a lot of lip service to uh, making itself like easy for people to, to get into. Um, I, I know a lot of people are kind of put off by how much dialogue and how much, you know, story uh, there is in the way of, you know, getting to do fun stuff within the game or whatever. Um, so I, I, I'm curious about kind of the, the epi economic yeah, ramifications of all, all of this stuff. Um, why, how does a game like this get made? Um, is it, is it possible anymore? Like would such a thing ever happen again? Uh, there, there's of course there's been a, a Final Fantasy VII remake and I know people always clamor for a Xenogears remake. Do you think there's any possibility of that? I don't know um, how iconic the game is in Japan. It does seem like there is the fervor for Xenogears in part is kind of, is that same fervor you get for anything that's more of a niche um, item. Xenogears never had the same sort of um, widespread mainstream impact in American culture, at least, as the Final Fantasy series did. And I, I think it's for all of the reasons why it is so good and it is so beloved by fans. It's very difficult in many ways. It's, it's the storyline is difficult. You have to work for it. Um, and I think whenever you have to work for art, it really limits its pop culture, um, its, its ability to invade pop culture. And so I, I think what's great about Xenogears is that it probably will never reach that iconic status and culture, but the people who love it, the love is probably deeper um, and more um, affecting than other games that, you know, more easily infiltrate the pop culture mind. Yes, yeah, I, in a way it sort of insulates itself from just being a, a commodity in, in the same way. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's ever gonna be a kind of like high culture you know, um, snobbish uh, sort of appeal thing, like like you get now with art that is like pretty impenetrable, but is nevertheless fetching enormous prices, you know, on the market uh, among the uh, the cognoscenti, like the people who know and, and want to be seen as knowing a lot about art or whatever. Like, would such, a, I don't know if such a scene would ever develop around video games, or maybe it's, it's there and I just am not part of it. I don't know. I think in terms of just that idea of rarity, you do need to have some sort of control over the amount of copies. Like a, the, just the very fact of uh, mass manufacturing limits the, I guess, the collectability of mm -hmm. certain types of media. It, it can never match painting or sculpture, for instance, where you're only gonna have one unique copy. So I, I think just the elitist, sort of um, positioning of artwork can never apply to video games or any mass media the same way. Um, so I think really where 
the where it'll live is not so much you know amongst the cosmetetti or you know in galleries or any sort of um, high level institutions like that. It's just in the fandom. It's just the the fervor that exists in the fandom, and that's you know pouring over the storyline, looking for little Easter eggs, you know just just the activities within the fans and how they interact with each other, I think is where the legacy for, you know, particularly video games will lie. Yeah, well, I, I definitely feel like there's um, a lot more to, to, to go into with that, um, just that sort of love of the game and um, the, the ways that you can appreciate it on deeper levels here. Um, I will try to um, get some more concrete uh, examples for us to look at for next time. But I, th I feel like this has been a really useful and certainly really interesting uh, kind of open discussion of, of some of the aesthetic uh, imports of the, uh, of the game. Um, do you have any sort of lingering thoughts here uh, before we close? Oh, I yeah, I think we, we covered a lot. Uh, I think the only thing that maybe I didn't mention is that I think one of the things that will continue to give Xanadir's a legacy is the fact that a lot of the nostalgia for that era can't be resolved. Um, there's a, a different sense of nostalgia for people of that era than I, than I believe to be for, you know, prior generations, you know. Uh, I think rather than childhood being the sort of like paradise lost that people want to revisit, I feel like the nostalgia is based more on not the childhoods themselves, but the vision of the future that we had as children at the mm. time. And I think that in a lot of ways, the, the future that is, uh, that we're living in now that we were imagining back then has not come to pass and probably never will. And so there will always be an intense desire to, to return to that excitement about the future that was represented in a lot of the video games and um, media of the time. And I, I think Xenogears is a great example of that. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Okay, so we'll pick up there next time if, you, if you're willing to come back on uh, in the future here. Um, thanks so much, Jason, for your time. Um, and uh, I look forward to you know reading more books and playing more video games with you in the future here. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, this was a great discussion, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Cool. All right. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.